Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 1. We're pressing rewind a bit, as you know. We've been in, we've been in Matthew, but we've been in the Sermon on the Mount uh, for some time now, and we'll get back to that uh, sometime in the new year. Uh, but our Advent series begins this morning. We'll look uh, this Sunday and next Sunday at Matthew 1, and then the 17th and the 24th, we'll look at Matthew 2. So, uh, four sermons for our Advent series. And the title is, God Always Keeps His Promises. That's sort of where I'll land the plane of the sermon, and, and really a, a, an idea that will feature in each of these sermons. Uh, the gospel writers, of course, are often pointing out how Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy. Matthew does this particularly so. He, he is... Uh, always wanting to show us, well, all the stuff, the prophecies, the, the types uh, in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment. In fact, we've already really looked at that point in our study of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says of Himself, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. And sometimes when we say that, our mind immediately goes to the fact that Jesus was perfectly, actively obedient, and that, of course, is true. He, he kept all parts of the law, but Maybe the part we don't think of as much when it comes to that idea is that He is a fulfillment because He is the fulfillment of prophecy. He came and was everything that the Messiah was to be and to do, and we'll see that in part this morning. Another idea to keep in mind, uh, particularly in this sermon, is, is the particular sermon title, which is, this is the end of the old story. You know, we, we flip the page to the New Testament, and we, and we sort of think in our mind, all right, something brand new. <laughs> Not really. Acts is kind of the brand new stuff, right, and moving forward. But the, the Gospels are the end of the old stuff. This is the ultimate climactic moment of everything the Old Testament has been pointing to, to and hoping for. It's the constant conflict of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. How's that going to play out? This son of promise and Abraham, right, this perfect deliverer and intercessor and in Moses, this eternal king sitting on a throne, Jesus, he's here, right? This is the ultimate and final fulfillment. And so, in a lot of ways, it's the, it's the final act of the old story before the newness of the beginning of the, uh, of the new story begins, which, of course, is where we are today. With all that in mind, let me read for us Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, 
and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we ask that you would now add your blessing and understanding to the reading of your word. Oh Lord, it seems as if it's a list of names, but there is so much here. This indeed is a genealogy of grace, a genealogy of your wonderful grace unto us. And it is Jesus' genealogy, but also our own, and that we would find ourselves in it. We would call upon your name and love you and follow you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The opening line of the great Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, has my personal favorite line in all of Christmas hymnody. It reads this way, O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The weary world rejoices. That's a great line. It's one of those lines that you hear it read and and you believe it to be true, but it's more than that in my opinion. It's one of those lines that you read or you sing and you can feel it. I can feel that line when I say it. A weary world rejoices, or maybe said differently, a weary world that needs to rejoice, that needs some rejoicing. You may remember that this was the title of our 2020 Advent series, A Weary World Rejoices. Every year we need some rejoicing, but maybe we particularly needed it in 2020 as we were in the middle of the pandemic. But every Christmas I arrive to December the 1st and I think of this line and it impacts me afresh every single year. Because Christmas really is a mixed bag, isn't it? Emotionally, it is a lot. If you're like me, you're both excited and somewhat dreading it. It's the busiest month of the year, personally, in the life of the church, and of course it's full of wonderful things, things that we look forward to every year, but it's also full of anxiety in preparation for those very same things. It will be full of class parties and small group parties and work parties, traveling, shopping, decorating. It will be full of kids' programs and worship services, and, and maybe I've only scratched the surface of your particular family's calendar. These things can be wonderful, but they also can add to our stress and make us declare for the 30th year in a row, hey, next year let's slow down a little bit and not do quite as much. I get to December every year, Westminster, and I'm tired. I don't want to be, but I am. And I sense every year that Advent has come at just the right time. I feel that way again this year. I'm weary and I need to rejoice, and I would imagine many of you feel the same way. We are weary people. We live in a weary world. We have lost dear members of our family and church family this year, as we seem to every year. And while we're comforted that they are with Christ, we feel their loss acutely at Christmas, don't we? 
Or perhaps 2023 has not gone quite as you hoped it would. Your job has not gone like you would have wanted. The new job that you took has not been as great as you expected it to be. Maybe you endured illnesses and injuries and broken relationships, and you're hoping that Advent brings rejoicing. You know, we're actually a weary denomination, the PCA. We talked about this back at General Assembly. We are a denomination that is grieving the loss of one of our wonderful leaders, Pastor Harry Reeder. Briarwood, no doubt, this Christmas season is a weary church that needs to rejoice in their Savior. Covenant PCA in Nashville, you know the church shooting from back in March. My friend Chad is the pastor there. His daughter Hallie was killed. No doubt a weary church and a weary family. In Chad's first sermon after that school shooting, he preached on Mother's Day. And he said a couple of things I want to make note of. He said, so many of you have asked how we're doing. And to that question, I usually answer, I don't know. We're learning to live with sadness, and that's okay. And then he quoted Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, that reads this way. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. To that, Chad said in his sermon, you know, at this point, we're not soaring on wings like eagles. We're not running without weariness. We're somewhere in the third category. We're trying to walk without fainting. Do you fall in one of those three categories here at Advent this year? Maybe you're soaring on wings like eagles. Things are going great, and praise be to God that that is so. Maybe you feel as if you're running and you don't sense any weariness, or maybe you're walking and you're just trying not to faint. It's been a difficult year, and you're hoping not for some escapism that Advent can bring, can't it? You're hoping for some real rejoicing and hope in your life. You know, for first century Israel, there was a lot of weariness as well. The future looked bleak, Rome was oppressive and insurmountable, but into all of this, Matthew wants to point out to them, as he wants to point out to us, God always keeps his promises, always. If it's rejoicing that we should do and the hope is what we need, then I hope you know that a well-chosen Christmas tree and your favorite Christmas movie and a perfect gift under the tree, it's not going to do it. We realize that most of our traditions come Christmas, as wonderful as they are, they're really an exercise in escapism, aren't they? It's not the joy and rejoicing that you need, which is to come back, yes, to a genealogy. Because this Christmas text doesn't belong among the lights and the ornaments and the parties. It's, it's not a decoration to distract us from the weariness. We need to look at the weariness, and then we need to look to Jesus. For our sake, as odd as it may seem, we need this text. Because in this genealogy, it's something wonderful for us to reflect on. It shows us the kind of people that Jesus came to save. It shows us this is not just Jesus' people, this is your people. You are a part of this genealogy too. It's ethnic and literal physical descendants, but it's, it's making a spiritual point that we must be caught up in. And if we're reminded of all the ways that God has kept His promises, and if He always keeps His promises, then that's got to propel us forward, doesn't it? That He will never leave me or forsake me. That what He began in me, He will see to completion. That there is absolutely nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That if he came once and he said he's coming again, it's not some mystical hope. It's something that I can truly base my life on. 
That is all that the genealogy tells us this morning. So three ways, after a long introduction, three ways I want us to look at this genealogy. Let's set the context. Let's look at the content. Let's pull out some of the names and examine it a bit. And then, and then the consequence. What, what, why is this important? Why do you have a genealogy as an Advent sermon? Well, I hope that'll be obvious as we come to the end. It's a long list of names, but this is incredibly important for a Jewish person. If you could say, what's the culture that in the history of earth that has cared less about genealogies and your family tree, it would be us. We would be the number one culture that could not care less about a genealogy. Not so with most cultures. This is a big deal. So when Matthew begins his gospel showing where Jesus came from, uh, this is perfect. (laughs) They would have wanted to know. This is the end of the story. This is all the stuff that the Old Testament's talked about. Jesus is the one. Matthew was pointing out to us. You can't really understand what all this is about until you understand what has come before. Why start a gospel with a genealogy? It's to highlight all this stuff, what the Old Testament has been saying. It's the backstory. We may be tempted to suggest that Jesus is, the story of Jesus started in the manger, or it started when he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand in his public ministry. No, the story of Jesus started long, 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 long ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis chapter 3 that we studied months and months ago, the seed of the woman, what, who is this offspring going to be that's going to completely conquer the seed of the serpent? Uh, we got a little bit there, and then we got a little bit more with Abraham, and, and all along the way till boom, Jesus, he's the one. And at the very opening of this, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, there's lots of names in this genealogy, three of them sort of rise above the rest, don't they? It's Abraham, it's David, it's Jesus. They're, they're the three sort of focal points of all of this. Well, what did God promise to Abraham? He promised descendants as many as the stars and the sky and the sands on the seashore. We represent those even today, don't we? He said, through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How? In Jesus. It means that all the stories that we have looked at throughout Genesis, all the stories that our kids study in their Bible lessons and the Old Testament, all of it's been moving towards Christ. All of it has. It's not that the Old Testament is about Israel and the New Testament is about Jesus. The whole of the Scriptures is about Jesus. And Matthew says he is now being born. It's why I think, and some commentators suggest this, Matthew knows that he is writing Scripture down for us. It's a common accusation that biblical scholars will make that, well, these gospel writers and Scripture writers, they had no idea that they would write down something of such significance. I don't think so. I think Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. And the reason I think that is, is one other point to keep in mind. The Old Testament in Matthew's day did not end with the book of Malachi, as it does for us. It ended with the book of Chronicles. There was a different ordering. And how does Chronicles open? With a genealogy. An eight-chapter genealogy, if you've ever done your Scripture reading. It's not the most interesting section of Scripture, but there's a point. There's a connecting point being made there. Ending with a genealogy and beginning, and all the stuff that all this Old Testament story has been about now finds its fulfillment in Christ. 
Matthew is saying, I am finishing that story. And a wonderful story it has been. Matthew is going to say that all of this has been about Christ. All of this has been about kings and kingdoms. That's the big terminology that that Matthew uses. If you remember back in August, we looked at four kingdom parables uh, found in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's just highlighting this point over and over again. One final contextual point to make, you may notice if you read through the Gospel of Luke this Christmas season, that the genealogy found there is very different than the genealogy in Matthew. Well, there's some reasons for that. One is Luke's genealogy is tracing through Mary. Matthew's genealogy is trace, tracing through, uh, through Joseph. Okay, so it's, it's a different, it's a different uh, a grouping of people there. Luke's genealogy goes back to Adam. That would have been important uh, for, for a Gentile people. Matthew's genealogy only goes back through Abraham, what, what a Jewish person would have found most important. So that's a little bit of the context of it. What about the content? What about the individual names we find? Again, genealogies were important. Sometimes this point's lost on us, but let's, let's try to think it from their perspective, not our own. In Ezra chapter 2, the children of Israel are returning back from Babylonian exile, and one of the very first things they do is try to find the documents of their family tree. Who are my people? This was important for a lot of men, actually, because they needed to prove that they were in the line of Levi so they could begin serving as high priests, but most of them could not find their records, so sorry. <laughs> you got to prove it, and this was a big deal, and, and they were quite sad that they couldn't find these things. Matthew includes Jesus' genealogy partly to validate him. He's, he's from the right people, almost like they had a checklist in hand. Okay, he's a Jew, check. Or he's, he's related to Abraham, check. Okay, we got that. David, check. Okay, sort of hopefully checking these boxes to say maybe he really is the one that Isaiah had prophesied about. Maybe he is the one that the Old Testament has been telling us of. But it's also for the purposes of fulfillment. That Jesus can show, I, I, I am this. Now, a lot of people don't believe that, but he is showing it. You'll see that this genealogy is carefully arranged in three groups of 14 names. I suppose this point could have been made under the contextual point, but genealogies in the Bible are not comprehensive, and they don't try to be. They are selective. That's how it functioned in the ancient world. Some biblical critics will say, well, wait a minute, you left out a bunch of names. We know. We didn't mean to include all the names. The Greek word here for to be the father of is a word ganeo, which can be translated as the father of. It can also be translated as the ancestor of. So when somebody says, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and and you are like, wait a minute, that's his great-grandfather. That's right, it's the ancestor of. It's not trying to be comprehensive, it's trying to be selective. Let's understand them on their terms, not enforce our understanding upon them. So it's, it's a symbolic ordering here. Now one commentator said, think of it like the letter N. Okay? You have Abraham, and to the climactic point of the Old Testament, David, and then we descend down to the Babylonian captivity, and now we're marching back up to Jesus. Okay? So it's thinking of it in the, in the groups of 14 uh, that way. What do we learn? Well, to reiterate a couple of points, but to elaborate on them, he's from the right line. Jesus is from Abraham and from David. 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How could that possibly be? It is possible in Jesus. It's the son of promise. Isaac is the son of promise in the Old Testament, isn't he? Supernaturally born, we might say, far after the ability of most men and women to be pregnant, right? Jesus is the truest and realest son of promise. He's supernaturally born, born of a virgin. So there's, there's a connection here. Jesus is that Messiah. He also came at the right time. This was the focus of our Advent series last year. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 4? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Because you may wonder, you know, why not have Jesus be born in the modern age? Why not in the age of television? Why not when we record all this stuff? We can, we can record, look, He did do the miracles, and He did rise from the dead, and He, you know, we could prove it. If someone contested it, we could roll out the footage, and they is that really the problem in someone's heart? Is it really more information that we need or that this world needs so that they might bow their knee to Christ? What would someone say if there was actual footage? They'd probably do what? Oh, that's fake news. That's a, that's a doctored video, right? He came exactly when the Father wanted him to come. And we would do well to remember what Jesus says to Peter when he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus does not respond, you're so clever, Peter, I knew you'd figure it out. No, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the same then as it is now. If you have ever called upon the name of the Lord, it's not because flesh and blood showed this to you, it's because your heavenly Father did. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. In sort of an implied way, this genealogy also points us to the fact that Jesus is divine. You'll notice how you get to the bottom and it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. It doesn't say he is the father of. He was in an adopted sense, but not in that, uh, that Joseph and Mary had come together to have Jesus. No, he's supernaturally conceived by the Holy Spirit, who is called Christ. He's born of a virgin, he is divine. He is God. But also, He is man, right? This genealogy implies the same. He's truly human. He's truly divine. But the Gospels are not written just to give us a biographical account of who Jesus was. As important as that information is, and it is very important, that's not all Matthew wants us to know. Here, I have some interesting facts for you. Well, yes, they are interesting, but what are we to do with this information? What does Matthew want for us? This is good news. These are not just good facts. It's, it's good news for weary souls. It's good news that Jesus has come. He is your Savior. Believe and trust in Him. He's interested in conversion, and we understand that as we continue to read in the Gospel of Matthew. He's not just wanting to tell you an interesting story. I don't just want to set out some contextual points for you this morning. Oh, that, how about that? I didn't know that before. I didn't know that before I came in here this morning. It's, it's more than that, isn't it? Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment so that you would believe in him, so that you would give your life for him, so that you would repent of your sin and trust in his grace. That's what he wants for us. 
Jesus has come, Matthew says, and weary world as you are, it's time to rejoice. And here's a great reason to do it. So lastly, it's the consequence of the genealogy. Now we need to understand a little bit more about how genealogies functioned in the ancient world to make this point. The genealogy, particularly for a king or a ruler, was their resume. Look at all the awesome, wonderful people I'm related to. I need to be your king, right? I don't have all these crazy people in my family tree like some of these other people do. Look how great I am. Elect me or or, or appoint me to be your ruler. It was designed to show your awesomeness, as one commentator said. Look how great I am. I should therefore be your leader. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus did. That doesn't seem to be scrubbed out of all the unsavory characters. There's quite a few of those in the ones that we read just a moment ago. It has Gentiles, it has outcasts, it has prostitutes, it has women, which would not have been advisable in that day to include them, certainly not something you would have boasted in. It hasn't been cleaned up in any way, which is, once again, good news. Jesus' family tree tells us, these are the kinds of people that I have come to save. This is the kinds of people that this kingdom is for. It's not for the perfect. It's for those who have come and have accepted the grace that I offer. It's a genealogy of God's grace and hope. It's good news over and over and over again. It's kings here and there's prostitutes. There are those we would call righteous and those we would call wicked. The first peculiarity is what I mentioned a moment ago, how there's women included. Now, no one would have objected if it had been Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, great, the, the, the matriarchs. They're not found in the genealogy. It's two Canaanites, Tamar and Rahab. It's Ruth, as wonderful as her story is. She is a Moabitess, who, a nation that hated Israel and mistreated them. There's Bathsheba. What is it saying? It's the kind of people that Jesus has come for, but even Matthew, the predominantly Jewish gospel, this kingdom's for everybody. Gentiles, you are welcome. No person, no leader in their right mind would have had this group in the, in the published genealogy that they would show into the world, but Jesus does because it's showing this is who I came for, this is who I love, this is who this kingdom's for. It's not for a narrowly defined group of people, it's for everybody. And I want you to know it. Paul says in Galatians 3, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring." Heirs according to promise. There is no distinction. There is no advantage. Just because you're a man, you have no advantage. Just because you're a Jew, you're not in an advantage. We are all one, humbly, in need of the grace of Christ. It's what he wants us to see. Yes, Rahab was a prostitute. Matthew was a tax collector. Paul was a persecutor and a murderer. That's who he came to save. It's what they once were, but they've been bought with a price, and now they are his children. Sinners they may be, but God has worked to rescue them. 
It's not suggesting that God's okay with what they did. He's saying, I loved them and saved them. When you read this genealogy, it actually puts on display exactly who Jesus is. He's a Savior. It, it really screams to us, we have a gracious and loving God, so come to Him. I bet this probably was of tremendous impact to Matthew as he wrote this down. Matthew was a tax collector. Again, a, a contextual point that sometimes the emphasis is lost on us. He's not an IRS agent. Ah, uh, no big deal, he's just doing his job. No, that's not what a tax collector was. A tax collector was an absolutely hated person. They were a Jew hired by the Roman government, so the Romans didn't like him because he's a Jew, to go back and to collect unfairly taxes upon his own people. Nobody likes you. Your own people don't like you because you're unfairly collecting taxes. The Romans don't like you simply because of who you are. So it's not that, oh, he's just doing his job. No, he's extorting people for money. He's, he's doing that which is wrong. And so when Matthew reads this, he's, thank goodness, there is grace like what Christ offers, or I would be completely hopeless. He reads this, and he sees hope, because most people would have hated his guts. Jesus doesn't. He invites them in. You know, some of us today, I hope that you don't think that the reason that you are a part of the kingdom of God and loved by your Savior is because you've always been a part of a church, or that you, you've always gone to Sunday school, or you've always been a part of a Bible study. As wonderful as those things are, they don't put you in an advantage. Conversely, if, you, if you're here this morning, this is only the second or third time you've ever darkened the door of a church, and you have lived a profligate life up until this point. You have not followed Christ. You have not cared anything about His ways. There is grace for you. You are not at a disadvantage in the kingdom of God. We are all sinners, and we all need His grace, and He invites all of us to come and to join this list. Because, yes, this is Jesus' genealogy, but it's also ours. This is your people, and He wants you to be a part of this but we must trust Him. Lastly, God always keeps His promises. This is your genealogy. This is a genealogy of grace, our first two application points. And now, a reminder again that He always keeps His promises. You know, there's a very unusual story at the very end of 2 Kings chapter 6 that crosses over into 2 Kings chapter 7. In 2 Kings 6, Syria, which is a nation to the north of Israel, has come down and laid siege to the northern kingdom, particularly Samaria. Things are so bad that inflation is completely out of control, about a thousand percent inflation. You can't really afford much of anything. And so the people of God are hoping, praying for some kind of relief. The prophet Elisha, he's the prophet in Israel at that time, he opens 2 Kings 7 by saying this. Elisha says, hear the word of the Lord, thus says the Lord. This is not Elisha's words, he's telling them what God says to them. Tomorrow about this time, Asaya, a fine flower, Asaya is just a standard of measurement, a fine flower shall be sold for a shekel, two sayas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. And then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. 
Let me translate that for you. What Elisha is saying is, tomorrow, everything's not going to go back to normal, but it's going to be a lot better. Things are going to get a lot better around here. And the right-hand man to the king says to the prophet Elijah, that's not happening. I don't believe a word that you have said. And so Elisha says in response, it's going to happen, and you're going to see it, but you're not going to get to enjoy it because of your lack of faith. It may be an odd way to end a sermon, but I think it makes a tremendously important point for us, yes, relative to a genealogy. What is the essence of faith, Westminster? It's not believing that God is capable of doing anything or these fanciful, wonderful things. He can. The essence of faith is believing that God will do what? Exactly what He says He's going to do. Exactly what He's promised He will do. The man receives a rebuke for not just generally believing God can act in mighty ways, but refusing to believe that God will do what He says He's going to do. That, that's great hope for us this Christmas, that God always does what He says He's going to do. He always keeps His promises. We've already seen it in the text, the ways that He's done it. So it lets us know He is coming again. He is going to make all things new. He is not just going to bring redemption to your life and heart. He's going to bring full redemption to all of humanity. There will no, no longer be even the chance for weariness. One day, we'll only be able to rejoice. We'll only be able to fall to our knees and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There won't be tears, there won't be sadness, there won't be weariness, and there will be no chance that it could even happen. How do we know that? Because God always keeps His promises. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word to us. We thank You that it is always true. And Lord, that You would give us faith in it. We confess we're often like the man in the Gospels who says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Would You help our unbelief? We're overcome by the fears of this world. We're overcome by our self-centeredness. Lord, that You would fix our eyes upon Jesus. Indeed, O Lord, as He is the author of our faith, He promises to be the finisher of it too. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We now transition to the Lord's table, an opportunity for not only for us to hear His Word preached to us as we have, but we can now see it. We can now see the elements and the signs of God's grace to us. But first, let me read our words of institution found in Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to His disciples and said, Take, eat, this is My body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in My Father's kingdom. You know, it's, it's here at the table that we are reminded again that God indeed keeps His promises, doesn't He? This table is a time to remember. It's a time Christ promised that He would come and do this. He promised that He would crush the head of the serpent, and He did that on the cross. He promised that He would give Himself. He promised that this was the joy that was set before Him. 
And now we come and we receive these elements and we are nourished by our remembering, but also even in the very ingesting of these things, we are spiritually benefited by it. We're thankful to the Lord for what He has done. No, it's not perfect. We wish that we always trusted in this and we always reflected on it the way we ought to and we don't. And, and we come again and we, we receive that admonition and we receive that growth in faith. And so as you hold the elements of just a few moments, think upon these things. Thank the Lord for His kept promises, knowing that He will do it again. Thank Him for this perfect life. Thank Him for this atoning death. Thank, you for the, thank Him for the blood that He shed for you and for us. And let's rejoice in that as we leave the service this morning. If you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, know that this isn't just a table for members of our church. If you have placed your faith in Christ, you've made a public profession. In other words, someone has heard your profession, and yes, that is a credible profession of faith. Take of the Lord's Supper this morning. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, you've Maybe you're brand new to the faith. We ask that you would refrain until you've had a chance to do so. The reason we say that is, is that this table is for the faithful, not the perfect, but for those who know they need it. And it's not for those who have not yet professed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that you would refrain from doing that until, you have a, until you've done so. Parents also, if your children have not yet made a public profession of faith, that they would refrain from the elements until they have done that. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these elements before us. We thank you for all that they represent. Would you transform them now, O oh Lord, from common elements to elements that are sanctified and special for our purposes today? Indeed, they are bread and they are juice for us, but they represent your body and your blood. Lord, that you would nourish us by your grace and that our faith would be strengthened today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For the sermon archive, go to wpcjc.org forward slash resources forward slash sermon hyphen archive. Scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible, the Holy Bible, English Standard Version, copyright 2001 by Crossway, a publishing ministry of Good News Publishers, used by permission, all rights reserved. ESV text may not be quoted in any publication made available to the public by a Creative Commons license. ESV may not be translated in whole or in part, into any other language. Verbal credit must also be given to the ESV.